you want to take your Bible and find your place with me at Philippians chapter 2, if you're just joining us online or you're joining us for the first time here in the service, uh, we are studying through the book of Philippians. And what an appropriate book, dealing with joy and rejoicing in the midst of the trials and the struggles of life. And so we're going to read the first 11 verses of chapter 2, and I hope you'll follow along with me, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own, look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interest of others. And then when we begin verse 5 down to verse 11, as you read these verses with me, you're looking at one of the most important Christological passages of Scripture in Old or New Testament. To understand about Jesus Christ, ultimately you've got to come to these verses. Verse 11, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Today we want to talk about Jesus coming down from his glory and the things that he has done for us as a result of him coming to us. As we begin, I want you to think of the city of Philippi as a destination location. You know, a lot of people take destination weddings and destination vacations and, you know, destination this and that. There's that specific place where they just have to go and they want to be, they want to celebrate, they want to have, you know, rest time. And there are destination places. We hear about them on the TV. We read about them in print media. Destination locations. Well, Philippi would have been one of those destination locations. It was about 800 miles from Rome, but it was a Roman colony. And when you were in Philippi, it was like being in a little part of Rome, the bigger city of Rome. And in that city, that destination city, was a destination church, if you will. And that church was the church at Philippi. I know that when Mary and I travel, sometimes we like to stop at various places and we'll go to churches that we've heard about and we'll attend a service when we go visit our son and daughter-in-law in Dallas, there's two or three churches that we love to be able to stop in. We can't go every time, but we are able to do so to be able to stop in and, and to visit them in a congregation. We were traveling back from Texas two or three years ago, and we decided it was too far to drive all the way home, uh, so we decided to stop in Memphis. Memphis is close to halfway. It's not quite halfway, but it's, it's close to halfway from here uh, to their house. And we got a room for the night, and I said, you know what? Uh, Bellevue Baptist Church has a Sunday evening service. And I said, I I'm going to go over for their Sunday evening service. Now, Mary didn't go with me. That's okay. Not everybody can be spiritual in the family. We all understand that. Uh, 
it had been a long day, to be honest with you, and all of the traveling, you know, that's a lot, a lot of headaches that you have to put up with. And, and so she stayed at the room, and, and I got in my car, and it was an exit down from where we were staying, and went over to Bellevue Baptist Church, and went there for the Sunday evening service, and just enjoyed myself thoroughly. Well, that's the kind of city this was. It was a destination city. And if there was such a thing as a destination church, this would have been one of those destination churches. You would have wanted, if you were in the city, to be able to gather with these believers. You know, 14 or 15 times through the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul uses the word for joy or rejoicing, the noun of the verb form. He uses it some 14 or 15 times through the book. Because when he thought about the city of thought about the city of Philippi, and he thought about the Christians in Philippi, the church in Philippi, it brought joy to his heart. It brought rejoicing to his life. It was a destination city. It was a destination church. It was a model church, if you will. But do you know that even when there are model churches, there are always battles and problems you have to deal with? And it's important to say that sometimes because people have a tendency to believe that, you know, every church is, there's a church somewhere that's just perfect, that everything just goes the way it's supposed to always go. There's never any problems. There's never any difficulties. And there is no such church like that. Every church is a messy place because people have messy lives and we bring that mess with us and it ends up spilling over onto other people and it affects other people within the congregation and, and causes different kinds of reactions. That's part of, learning to be a part, it's part of learning to be a part of a family, to live together as a family. You don't just run looking for the perfect place. And even this destination city of Philippi in this destination church wasn't a perfect place. It was a great place. You wanted to go there. You wanted to be in the congregation. You wanted to experience what they were doing in that city. But the fact of the matter is it wasn't a perfect place. And we know that if you back up just a few verses from chapter 2, verse 1, at the end of chapter 1, you'll notice it says for, to you, verse 29, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. One of the things they were dealing with was outside pressure, persecution, suffering, sort of like the suffering and the persecution that the Apostle Paul was having to deal with. And there were those from outside the congregation living in the city apparently that were putting pressure on this congregation. If you look at chapter 3, you see another kind of a mess that they had to deal with in this congregation. Chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same thing to you is not tedious, but for, your, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Now look, he's not talking about your pets. He's using the term in a derogatory sense. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the, mutil the, the mutilation. That there were those not only from outside putting pressure on them, apparently there were some that were infiltrating them that were teaching things that were error, things that were false, a form of Judaism uh, that uh, was holding on and that Jesus had set them free from, and yet there were some bringing it to them, and they were preaching this false doctrine. And then if you'll notice over in chapter 4, another kind of, of mess that they had to deal with in this destination city, in this destination church. Chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, my beloved and long-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. There was outside pressure. There was false teaching, apparently trying to get amongst the congregation. And there were at least two women in the church that were at war with one another. 
They were at odds with each other, and people were taking sides as to which of these two women they were going to support in their particular cause, and there was this conflict that was going on. You mean in a destination city, in a destination church, they have problems? Yeah. You know, that church in Memphis, it has problems just like every other church. Those churches in Dallas have problems just like every other church. This church, we have problems just like everybody else has problems. Every church has those struggles. It's a part of dealing with people. If you come to church looking for a perfect church, please don't join it because you'll make it imperfect. The fact of the matter is there is no such thing as a perfect church. And here was a congregation that was a dest- in a destination city that would have been a destination kind of a congregation where it caused the rejoicing of the Apostle Paul whenever he thought about them. And yet he points out that they have these pressures that are coming from inside and from outside and even amongst some members that are conflicting with one another. And he comes in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and he said, now look, this is how you're going to deal with this internal, these internal issues where unity is going to come to. And he begins in verse 1 by appealing to something that should appeal to every one of us who knows Jesus Christ. Go back to it with me for a moment again. He says, if there's any consolation in Christ, the word means encouragement or comfort. If there's any comfort or encouragement, where is it? In Christ. Because we are in Christ. We are his children. There's comfort and consolation. If any comfort of love that comes to us from Christ, we are loved and we realize the depth and the magnitude of that love. If there's any comfort that comes from that love, if there's any fellowship in the Spirit. If there's any fellowship of the Spirit, a fellowship that comes because you're in union with God and the Spirit of God dwells within you, and there's a fellowship that unites you to others who share the Spirit of God, who have the Spirit of God dwelling within them. And and then he finishes out by saying, if there's any affection, that's a word for the deepest sense of feeling, the deepest sense of emotion, if there's any sense of affection and mercy, he says, I'm appealing to you. I'm appealing to you. By the way, those clauses, those, those uh, uh, phrases uh, aren't meant to create doubt. They, they answer themselves. If, if there's any consolation in Christ, and there is, if there's any comfort of love, and there is, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, and there is, if there's any mer- affection and mercy, and there is, He's appealing to them on the basis of your common salvation and what you have in Jesus Christ. What I'm about to tell you is absolutely essential in this destination city, in this destination church, for you to be able to come together and get the work of God done. Somebody paraphrased that opening verse this way. If being a Christian has brought you any encouragement, if any comfort in times of pain or loneliness as you've you've basked, in the assurance that you're loved by God himself and loved by other believers, if any sense of fellowship or partnership arising from the Spirit's common work in the family of God, if any fresh experience of tenderness and compassion, you hear what he's saying? He's appealing. He's appealing through me today to each of us. He's appealing to us, and he's appealing to us for at least three things. First of all, that we would live in harmony that we would live in harmony. Verse 2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, to think the same thing about the matters of doctrine, about the matters of truth, about the matters of ministry, about the matters of the mission of the church, to think the same thing, be like-minded, having the same love, 
Have this common love that you share with one another, being of one accord, and there's our word. It means to be united in spirit. It means to be harmonious. And we'll talk about that in a moment. It means to be harmonious. And then he comes back to a word that he used earlier, of one mind, like-minded, of one mind, not double-minded, going in different directions, thinking different ways about key issues. He says, I want you to be like-minded. I want you to have the same love. I want there to be harmony in your midst. You, you are aware that uh, not everybody's supposed to be singing the same part or playing the same instrument in the church, in the body of Christ. All of us have our place. All of us have our role and our responsibility. Each of us are playing a different, a different instrument. Each of us are playing a different part within that greater orchestra. But all of it's supposed to blend together in beautiful harmony to bring glory to God. When I was a teenager, uh, I was in, um, in the band. Uh, and I'm thankful that my mother made me be in the band. It, for a long time, I didn't like it very well. But today I can read music and I can understand timing and things that I wouldn't have known had I not been made to take, uh, take band. And so I was in the band. And if you've ever been to a band concert, you've ever been to an orchestra concert, if you get there early enough, you know, not just right before the concert begins, you, you know that the instrumentalists oftentimes come out and they sit in their various spots across the orchestra and they'll begin playing little pieces out of the music that they're going to be playing together in a little while. And it sounds like utter and absolute confusion, right? They're not of the same mind. They don't have the same love at that particular moment. They don't have a conductor there leading them into the music so that the timing is coming together in exactly the same way, in the same place, at the same time. They don't have those things. And they're all doing their own thing, and there's no harmony. I remember when we were in band, one of the things we had to do is we had to tune our instruments at the beginning of band. And he'd give you a note. And everybody then would play that note. And you have to try to tune your instrument by moving the slide on the instrument. You have to tune or moving the reed on, on the clarinet or the saxophone. You have to change that instrument so that you could match that tune, that particular note. And you tried the tune. And I don't know how many times I heard Mr. Latson say when we were in competition, he said, now listen, listen to the people that are around you. Listen to the ones around you and make sure to tune yourself to each other. Tune yourself to each other. You know what he was saying? When you're in a concert, if you don't know this, when you're in a concert, as the room changes, the instruments change. As the instruments warm up, your air is going through those instruments. As the room gets warmer or the room gets cooler, the, the instrument changes and, and the pitch changes. You may be playing the same note, but you might be sharp or you might be flat. And you have to listen to the person next to you so that you can be in harmony. You can be in harmony. That's what God intends. The Apostle Paul comes and says, look to this destination church in this destination city where there are problems like there are in every church. What you have to do, I, I, I appeal to you on the basis of the common salvation that you share together and the love that God has shed abroad in your heart. I appeal to you to live in harmony. Live in harmony. And the only way for two minds to be in tune is if they're in tune with the infinite God. One of the ways we would tune many years ago was to take a, a tuning fork and you tap it. It's a little U-shaped thing with a handle on it. You tap it 
and it makes that pitch that you've got to match, and you tune your instrument to that pitch. Today they have electronic things that have little needles or colors, colored lights, and you know, it, you know exactly when your instrument is in tune because you can see it. You don't have to just hear it. You can see it on that little instrument that they utilize. Well, who is the tuning fork? Who is the instrument to whom we attune our lives? It is God himself. Every single one of us stops every single day, and we seek to tune our lives to God. Listen, you can't be in tune with God and be out of harmony with, the, with your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're out of harmony with your brothers and sisters in Christ, somebody is off pitch. Somebody is not in tune with the Father. Why why do we give so much attention to reading your Bible and praying and sharing your faith and following the Lord and believers' baptism and gathering with believers uh, for the worship of God and serving the Lord and all of these things that are the basics of the Christian life. Why do we give so much emphasis to them? Because every time you open your Bible and every time you gather together with the people of God to worship and every time, uh, every time you're busy serving the Lord, the, the tuning fork, God the tuning fork, you're hearing it, and God is bringing you into tune with him because when you're in tune with him, even if you're playing a different part, you're in harmony with everybody else. And that's what God intends for us to do. God intends for us to live together in harmony. Now, some people just love to be discordant. They pride themselves in that. They pride themselves in you know, playing the, the minor key while everybody else is playing the major key. They, they, they pride themselves in being in the key of F while everybody else is in the key of B. They, they pride themselves in that. And that's, that's not, that's not uh, greatness. That's, that's arrogance. That's pride. We, we stop and we say, Lord, where, where do you want us to be? How do I get my life in tune with you? You are the master tuning fork. I hear the pitch that you want for my life. I want to live before you in a way that I am in tune with you so that when I'm playing the instrument, whatever it is you've given me to do, I am in perfect harmony when those, with those that are around me. And I can be listening to others and they can be listening to me and we can be making adjustments along the way so that we finish out the work of God working together and making beautiful music. You ever heard that person sing a song that you know, they had one particular not high note or maybe a, a two or three little high notes in the song, and they were just off pitch when they got there. Okay, so I'm the only one who's done that. They're just off pitch, and, and every time they come to that note, you think, mm, just, mm, can I help them up a little bit? Mm. If I could just, they're flat, if I could just. He wants us to be in tune with one another. Are you living in harmony with the body of Christ? Or are you more like Euodia and Syntyche? You know, you're, you're in conflict. There's a problem there. Somebody's out of tune with the Lord. Maybe both are out of tune with the Lord. There's people spreading false teaching. And maybe there are those who are accepting of it. Somebody's out of tune with the Lord. It's creating a discordant sound. It's, they're not on pitch. It doesn't sound right. in the church... The church isn't giving glory to God, isn't bringing glory to God. You ever been in a church that's constantly fighting? I'm not talking about every once in a while they have, have a conflict of some kind. Every church has that. But I'm talking about a church that's always at war. Our home church no longer even exists. A church that's always at war. 
Have you, have you ever heard, seen a church? Every time you hear about them, it's always about some battle that's going on, some discordance that's coming out of the congregation. I'm so thankful that God has given us harmony in our congregation. We don't all see the same thing the same way. We have different opinions and ideas, but on the most important things in life, we're listening to the tuning fork, our Heavenly Father, and we're tuning our lives constantly to Him so that we can live in harmony with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're listening to each other along the way so that in the process we can continue to make adjustments so that we stay in tune and we bring a glorifying message to the world around us. Psalm 133.1. How good and how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in, you know the next word? In unity. Unity does not mean uniformity. You don't want a bunch of trumpet players, and that's all your orchestra is made up of. You need trumpet players and saxophonists and violinists and cellists, and you need the timphonies, and you need the drums, and you need the cymbals, and you need all of those instruments, but they all need to be playing under one conductor on one piece of music They all need to be playing in harmony with one another so that what comes from it is this beautiful sound that brings glory to God. And churches are supposed to be places where we live in harmony. If there is a place anywhere in the world that we live in harmony, it ought to be in the church. It's not possible to live in harmony in the world around us because there are so many discordant voices that are only speaking about themselves and only sharing their own thoughts and ideas. But you and I have a common Lord, and we have a common Scripture. We have a common Spirit that indwells us. We have a common salvation that we share. And Paul appeals to it. He says, look, have the same mind. Have the same love. You're supposed to be a people living in harmony. And if I'm out of harmony, if I'm significantly out of harmony with the body of Christ, then it may well be me that needs to get tuned up to the Lord. You say, how do we do that, preacher? Well, you know, I was just looking through Philippians. When Christians declared that to live is Christ, that's chapter 1, verse 21, and they acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, that's chapter 2, verse 11, and they desire to know Christ above all others, that's chapter 3, verses 8 to 10, then they'll have one mind. Because to be like-minded is more than being agreeable It's agreeing that Jesus Christ is Lord and submitting to his lordship. Amen? You get up every day and you say, Lord, this is not about me today. This is about you. Is my life in tune with you? The second thing the Apostle Paul says, not only am I appealing to you on the basis of this common salvation and these common experiences that we have in Christ that you should live in harmony. He says, I want you to as well live with humility. Ooh, live with humility? Do you realize that humility is not a very prized virtue in the age in which we live? Chapter 2, verse 3, notice what he says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Just stop there. That's a political word. That's a politicking word. That's a campaigning word. Uh, That's a word for somebody who's stumping you know, when we talk about they're, they're stumping for somebody, it, it's a word where you're pushing yourself forward or you're pushing some idea forward above everybody else and above everything else. It's a partisan who's for hire. We're not supposed to be living that way in the body of Christ. No selfish ambition. By the way, that's the exact same word that he uses back in chapter 1, verse 16. Remember when he talked about the preachers there that were preaching not because they loved Paul, but because they didn't love Paul. 
And it says they were filled with what? Selfish ambition. They were pushing themselves forward. They were driving themselves forward. It's not the way we're supposed to be living. Then he uses the word conceit in verse 3. To be conceited, obviously, you know what that means. It's empty pride. It's the desire for praise. It's groundless self-esteem. You realize that the problem we have today isn't too little self-esteem. It's too much self-esteem. You believe that? It's not too little self-esteem. It's too much self-esteem. David Forster Wallace, who was an author, uh, spoke at a commencement address at Kenyon College, that's in up, upstate New York, or upstate Ohio, excuse me, in 2005, and he said something that caught everybody's attention. Listen to it. These are his words. Everything, in my opinion, immediately, everything, in my opinion, immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. We rarely think about this sort of natural basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive. But it's pretty much the same for all of us. It's our default setting, hardwired into our boards, into our boards at birth, like a computer, hardwired into our boards at birth. We are self-centered. It's no wonder, is it? I mean, we've been holding those babies and we've been giving them everything they want, right? And if you give them to a grandparent, they're going to get even more of what they want, right? It's, it's hardwired. Now, I know there's some people through the circumstances that they've grown up in, maybe the family setting or the way they were treated or mistreated, the way they were spoken to. Maybe there's some people that struggle with self-esteem, but that's not the problem for most of us. Our problem is that we're conceited. The world, we think, survives, surrounds us, circles around us. We think we're the center of humanity, that everything ought to be about us. Pay attention to me. And a lot of times you find people who supposedly have humility, you know, poor, poor me, life is so hard, I'm so bad. They sort of have that Eeyore kind of personality. You have an Eeyore personality? Any, no, you don't, have to, you don't have to admit it. An Eeyore kind of a personality? Poor me, poor me. That's not, that's not humility. That's pride. That's a, that's a pseudo pride. It, that's, pay attention to me. Look at me. I want you to see me. I want you to say something good to me. He says here, I want you not to live with selfish ambition, pushing your ideas and yourself forward or conceit, where it's all about you and life is all about you. But then here comes our words, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Lowliness of mind, it means a deep sense of humility. Not a virtue you hear much about, is it? And yet a virtue that's so absolutely necessary in God's church, if we're going to work together and we're going to come together in harmony, there has to be that sense of humility. Greece said, be wise and know yourself. Rome said, be strong and discipline yourself. Religion says, be good and conform yourself. The Epicureans who yielded to their flesh, they they indulged their flesh, said, be sensual and satisfy yourself. Education says, be resourceful and expand yourself. Psychology says, be confident and assert yourself. Materialism says, be possessive and please yourself. Humanism says, be capable and believe in yourself. Pride says, be superior and promote yourself. But Christ says, be unselfish and humble yourself. Do you see it? It's the complete opposite of everything you hear in a classroom. 
It's the complete opposite of everything you hear on the television or the radio. It's the complete opposite of everything that's taught in the print media. It's the complete opposite. The Apostle Paul comes and says, listen, on the basis of this common salvation that we share together, this experience that we all have together, I want you to live in harmony. I want you to get your life in tune with the Lord, and I want you to play the part God's given you to play in harmony with everyone else, and I want you to live with humility. I want you to humble yourself. And then Paul gives to us what is the greatest example of that humility. I can't spend time delving into the depths of this passage about the kenosis, the self-emptying of Christ. It's an incredible passage of Scripture. But he gives us the example. Look at it, verse 5. Here's the humility he's talking about. Let this mind, this attitude of humility be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, that doesn't mean just the outward form, that is the very essence, the permanent essence of who he is. In the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He already possessed it. It wasn't something he had to grasp after as if he was going to lose it or he could attain it for himself. He already had it. He was already equal with God. Verse 7, he made himself, he made himself of no reputation. He took the form of a bondservant, the lowest, the lowest stature in life. And coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. Notice these next three words. Circle them, highlight them, remember them. He humbled himself. That's what Paul's talking about. When Paul says we have to live with humility, he he doesn't want you to have to be humbled. You, You don't want to be humbled, right? You ever been humbled? You ever had your spouse humble you? Okay, so I'm the only one that has that problem too. Ever been humbled? Ever been in a business somewhere and somebody just let you have it and they humbled you? Pointed out your faults, every one that you had? We shouldn't have to be humbled. We should humble ourselves. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. And then he goes further. He says, not just death. The cross, the death of the cross, the most ignominious death there is. Roman citizens didn't die on crosses. It was withheld from Roman citizens. It was kept for those that were foreigners. It were kept for those that were the criminals, for the worst of society, for those that they wanted to make an example of. It was the worst form of death, the worst possible death. And yet Jesus, the master of it all, the one who is equal with God, the one who at his very essence never ceases to be God, even though he takes on the form of man. humbled himself even to the death of the cross. And Paul says, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. He emptied himself by laying aside the independent use of his attributes. He became a human in a sinless human body. He used his body to serve others, and he willingly gave his body on the cross. Do you get it? God says to us through his word, we're to humble ourselves, we're to live in harmony, we're to live with humility, humbling ourselves. By the way, you'll never live in harmony as long as you're filled with arrogance and pride. You'll never get tuned to the master as long as you're living with arrogance and pride. Think about it. Jesus said he had nowhere to lay his head. 
He had only the clothes on his back. He had to borrow a place to be born. He had to borrow a boat in which to ride and from which to preach. He had to borrow an animal to ride into the city of Jerusalem. He had to borrow a room for the Passover. He had to borrow a tomb in which to be buried. He he possessed the greatest rights that anyone could ever possess as God. But he waived them to come to us. In heaven he was rich, but for our sakes he became poor. He divested himself of the constant company of holy angels to be constantly beset by demons. And despite all the things he set aside, he was always and will forever be God. Is it any wonder the Apostle Paul uses him as the highest example there is? Let this mind... This mind of humility, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. And then finally, the Apostle Paul says, not only should we live in harmony and live with humility, he says we should live to be helpful. Verse 4, he says, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. It's not that you don't look out for your interests, but you don't look out only for your own interests. And there's two words that you want to circle at the end of verse 3, the word others, and at the end of verse 4, the word others. The Christian life is not just about us, it's about others. It's about others. Mary and I used to sing a hymn together. We don't sing it anymore, probably is a good thing. You would still enjoy hearing her sing it, but I don't think I could do it. But it was a song about others. It said, others, Lord, yes, others, let this my motto be, help me to live for others that I may live like thee. Lord, help me live from day to day in such a self-forgetful way that even when I kneel to pray, my prayers shall be for others. And the words go on like that in the following verses. Others, Lord, yes, others, let this my motto be. Help me to live for others that I may live like thee. Do you get it? Others, others, others. We live in harmony. We live with humility. We live to be helpful to others. We live to serve other people. Say, I don't like serving other people. Then you haven't humbled yourself like Jesus was humbled, have you? Can you tell me a place where Jesus was served? Jesus was constantly serving others. One of my favorite phrases in in one of the sermons in the book of Acts says that he went about doing good. Talking about Jesus, he went about doing good. You stop and ask the leper, the man with blindness, or the one who was deaf, or the, the widow whose son had died. You stop and ask the one who was a paralytic. You, you ask the one who had leprosy. You ask. He was always serving others. Even when he was on the cross, he was serving us by making it possible for us to go to heaven. I wish I could show you this video. I looked it up and I played it, but the quality wasn't good enough to to show you. But in a town in Washington State, a girls' college softball game was played between Central Washington and Western Oregon. It was the second game of a doubleheader between these two teams, and they were fighting for the conference championship. It was Central Oregon senior Sarah Tukowski, her last chance to win a championship. She'd never hit a home run in her entire career, but at the top of the second inning, she was in the bat, There were two runners on base, and she connected with one and sent it over the fence. Unfortunately, as Sarah rounded first base, she tore her ACL. 
She lay there. If you watch it, she lay there in pain for a few minutes there in the baselines. The rules say that if somebody falls like that or gets hurt like that, if you put a substitute in, that home run becomes a single, a two-run single. The other part of the rule says that your teammates can't go out and help you to get around the rest of the bases. That's when Central Washington's Mallory Holtman, a player with more home runs than any other player in conference history, went to the umpire and said, could two of us carry her around the bases? And she and Liz Wallace carried Sarah in their arms, carried her around the bases. They stopped at second and they lowered her. You watch the video. They lowered her so that with her good foot she could touch the base, took her to third base. They did the same thing, took her to home and did the same thing. Mallory said to Sarah, you hit the ball over the fence, you deserve it. And those two girls showed sportsmanship unlike uh, any sportsmanship you'll see anywhere else. Mallory Holtman and Liz Wallace and the Central Washington team lost the game that day, 4-2. to two. Sarah lost any future in, in sports, uh, at least in the coming years in sports. But sportsmanship on that day was on great display, wasn't it? And what were those two players doing? They were helping others. Who are you carrying? Who are you assisting? Who has their arm around you and you're the strength that they need to get along? Who is it you're watching after and looking out for other than just yourself? The scripture says he wants us to live in harmony. He wants us to live with humility and he wants us to live to be helpful to others. Others, Lord. Yes, others. Let this my motto be. I want to finish by reading verses 9 to 11 one more time. Listen to what happens to Jesus. He humbles himself, but then notice, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.